Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 75, How to Define What You're Learning. This is the last of seven episodes in our critical thinking series about using the squared method. Critical thinking is a critical component of succeeding in college, but many students have never been taught how to think critically. The squared method outlines seven methods of increasing the skill, summarizing, questioning, unpacking, analyzing, relating, explaining, and defining. In this final episode of this series, we're going to talk about the skill of defining what you're learning. Now, defining is kind of like summarizing in that you want to use your own words to say it as simply as possible. The more complicated the definition, the harder it's going to be to remember. So let's try this on a definition that I totally randomly picked from the web. And if you believe that, um, well, I've got a bridge to sell you. But in any case, anomie. The definition we've got here is social instability resulting from a breakdown of standards and values, also personal unrest, alienation, and uncertainty that comes from a lack of purpose or ideals. Well, that looks clunky. Let's see if we can boil that down a bit. Standards and values, purpose and ideals, these are all just ways of saying norms, aren't they? So let's just use norms. And the words used to describe the effects of anomie are all negative, so let's just say negative effects and have done with it. And that gives us the definition, anomie, the negative effects of a lack of norms in society. Now, isn't that easier to remember? I'd think so. Too many times, we've seen students struggle and give up trying to memorize the clunky, jargon-filled definitions provided by well-meaning textbook writers. While we understand the push to use lots of disciplinary jargon, Adam and I both feel definitions are the wrong place for it unless there is literally no other word that will work. And if that's the case, that word needs to be defined as part of the definition. The social sciences and hard sciences are especially guilty of this problem. Open your average chemistry or anthropology textbook and you'll probably find definitions listed in the margins full of stultifying vocabulary words but not communicating much in the way of meaning. Let's all do our best to ditch the jargon in favor of clarity whenever and wherever we can. I once had to teach from a required textbook, and I think the textbook was chosen mainly by how impressive all the big words were. I often couldn't make heads or tails of the definitions in the margins, and I was the teacher. So I finally switched from trying to teach those definitions to boiling them down as a major part of my lecture classes just so that the students would not be completely at sea while they were trying to learn this new discipline called sociology. It was really, really annoying. And they made a note of both the book and the publisher and made a point of never ever using them again in any class I taught. I took an intro to microeconomics class when I was an undergrad. It was by far one of the worst classes I've ever taken at any level. The book for the class was written by the professor and I thought that that would be great. Whatever I didn't understand from the book, I could get in lecture. Problem was, his lectures were the book practically word for word. 
I wish I was exaggerating. And a problem with this is that his book, kind of like the one that Adam just described, had a ton of fancy economics lingo, at least for someone completely unfamiliar with that field. And the definitions didn't make any sense to me. Nothing was clicking. I had to borrow a friend's economics textbook that was written in the 1980s. And that book, the older one, had much clearer, simplified definitions that helped me make sense of my class. And that older book was probably the biggest reason I passed my class in the end. I was at a conference one year when I was still in graduate school. And in my session, there was someone who was presenting a postmodernist paper. Now, granted, this was their first time presenting. I think they were a first-year graduate student where they were, but they were trying so hard to impress everybody. And they just stood there and read their paper. They didn't give a presentation at all. And they were looking down. They wouldn't look up. I couldn't really read their lips, so I missed half of what they said anyway because I'm partially deaf. And it was just all this stultifying postmodernist jargon, which has been shown, by the way, to have problems. There have been people who have done things like create computer AIs that have written postmodernist papers full of postmodernist jargon, and then they've sent them. It was called the so-called hoax. This guy, he was a physicist, and he, he created a postmodernist physics paper full of postmodernist jargon and postmodernist definitions and sent it off, and it got approved by a postmodernist journal. And then it turned out it was all essentially sound and fury signifying nothing. That's Shakespeare. And so Call later said he did it in order to point out this problem, that there's no thinking involved if you can't understand what's being said. Part of the, the deal with definitions is you want to be able to make sure that you can actually understand what's being said, that it's clear. And if a definition is full of jargon, it's not clear. I went up to that kid who read his you know, postmodernist paper, and I said, I have one question. And he said, yes. And I said, what was your research question? He said, that's none of your business, which meant he didn't have a research question, which meant his paper was probably about as valid as the one that SoCal sent to that, sent to that journal. The main problem here, folks, and the thing we're really arguing with here with the defined thing is you must be able to be clear about what you mean or you're not going to remember it. You're not going to understand it. Your students aren't going to remember it. They're not going to understand it. If you're a writer, your readers aren't going to understand it. It's not fair to you or to your readers or to your students to provide definitions full of stultifying jargon that makes no sense. You know, there's a rule, it's a joke rule, but it's still a great rule. It said, sedulously eschew hyperverbosity and prolixity, which basically means don't use too many big words and only use them when you really need them. Like we had a definition of a word, anomy. If we had defined anything else with anomy, we would have needed to stick in that very short definition. So, you know, anomy, the negative effects of a lack of norms in society show up in this situation in these ways. But don't just say anomy. And certainly don't say anomy, the oh, social instability resulting from a breakdown of standards. And, oh, really? Come on, we've gotta be clear. And if we can't be clear, then there's no point in writing down a definition. So students, here's how you can use this technique of defining. Find simple, direct ways to say what your teacher said or what the textbook says in your own words. And this is where you use a technique I call grandma language. Can you define this term for your grandma well enough and simply enough that she could pass a quiz on it without having to take the rest of the class? If not, 
your definitions too complex. Keep working on your definitions so they make sense and so they're easy to remember when you see that term on a flashcard or on an exam. The way teachers can use this, boil down your textbook definitions for your students wherever you can. Remove jargon unless you define it in non-jargoned ways. Declare war against overwritten, hyperverbose descriptions that could be shorter and clearer, and engage your students in this fight. Our students have enough to worry about without also having to parrot back a definition they don't understand, don't they? And if they don't understand it, how are they ever going to work with that concept in your class in an effective manner? So that's what we have for you in episode 75. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write us a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 76, when we'll talk about how to give and take effective feedback. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. We look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>